You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's show is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including Commodores Kane, Kenway, Scurvy Pete, Hefei, Zuman, Blacktip, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalinde, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. In the spring of 1686, 500 pirates gathered at Ilamuerhes, the northernmost point on the Yucatan Peninsula. There were seven vessels, ranging from the Neptune frigate down to single-masted periaguas, and they all rallied behind Lorho Cornelis, Baudouin de Graaf. Five hundred pirates was nothing to scoff at, but this was a shadow of what de Graaf might have rallied only a year ago. Mikhail Andrezun, his longtime comrade and top lieutenant, was not there. Jan Willems, one of the most feared rovers in the world, was busy hiding out in Carolina. Michel de Grammont was currently on his way across the Atlantic, but that was a voyage from which he would not return. Those three captains had, for years, served as de Graaf's top men. Of course, Buccaneer society wasn't exactly regimented like the Navy, but when Lorho de Graaf called, those three answered. More to the point, their crews were skilled, experienced, able privateers, and they made up the majority of the parties that sailed on Vera Cruz and Cartagena. They were battle-tested veterans, they were forged in that Franco-Dutch war, and they were tempered by years of successful raiding. Now, 500 pirates, again, was not too shabby, but these pirates were not the cream of the crop. They were unknown, unnamed men. They were new to the game, and while they were eager, they weren't experienced. And these were pirates, rest assured. The Treaty of Radisbon that ended the War of the Reunions was very clear on the question of French Bougainville. They were not to go out raiding under any circumstances. Yet here they were, at Ilamuerhes. But they weren't on the king's business. They were out for revenge. Spanish privateers had only just raided the plantation of Lorho de Graaf back in February, only about a month, month and a half earlier. The French only recorded 100 slaves being carried off, but last time I postulated that it was a more violent and retaliatory raid than that. I also suggested that Mikhail Andres Zun, who was de Graaf's oldest friend, and his wife, Francesca, were both killed. Again, we don't know that, so take it with a grain of salt. Whatever the cause, though, de Graaf was here with 500 men. They were acting against the mandate of the king and the governor, and they were in defiance of an international treaty. Yet still, they prepared to attack the Spanish main. Their goal was Ascension Bay, on the east coast of the Yucatan, just south of Ilamuerhes. The pirates sailed on the bay and made landfall, marched inland. This was dense jungle, but there were paths to follow. They stopped first at a small hamlet called Tijosuco, about 50 miles from the coast. 
They found it abandoned. The locals had word of their coming, and they were long gone. Still, de Graff ordered the town ransacked and burned. Then the pirates set out to march even further inland. There was a proper city, maybe about another fifty miles to the north, Valladolid. Now, the pirates might not have exactly been eager to continue their march inland. It wasn't just the heat and the damp and the wildlife, although those certainly played a part. They were deep in Mayan country now. The Spanish may have occupied the Yucatan, but most of the inhabitants were still Maya. The jungle, though, was filled with the ghosts of the Maya Empire, with ruins of their temples and sacrificial altars. The land would have still whispered of their gods. It was an uneasy sort of place for any Europeans. And then there were the serpents and jaguars that hid in every shadow. At night the pirates were watched by glowing yellow eyes. Then, as they were marching, the pirates passed through villages, no larger than maybe a few dozen homes. The people were fleeing before the pirates, but the fires in those villages were sometimes still warm. That sensation that they were not welcome began to grow. As they marched, the path began to grow cluttered with the discarded belongings of Spanish and Mayan refugees. Now, the buccaneers picked through all of it, but there was rarely anything of any real value. But all of a sudden, de Graff ordered the column of pirates to turn around and make for their ships back in Ascension Bay. Now, no one is entirely certain why. Several myths, though, have cropped up around the order. They range from a dream in which de Graff was visited by the Mayan gods and ordered to retreat to a ghostly apparition on the path before him, and then to the most commonly told story, that of a clever young refugee named Nunez. According to legend, Nunez knew that they were being followed by the pirates, and he knew that they were going through all of the discarded belongings. So an idea came to him. He wrote out a set of orders from the governor. They detailed a Spanish trap being laid for the pirates, 2,000 men strong, certain death. Then he dropped the orders carelessly, but in a place where the pirates were sure to find them. Now, of course, there was no trap actually being laid. Valladolid was hopelessly underdefended. However, for whatever reason, be it ghosts or Mayan gods or the ploy of one clever refugee, Lorho de Graff turned around and fled the Yucatan. This is episode 57, A Parcel of Thieves. The years immediately following, the raid on Campeche would see Europe and all of her colonial holdings devolve into previously unknown warfare. It would eventually spread from Europe to every corner of the globe, but Spain was to make the first move. However, that war, that building conflict, well, it was already in the West Indies. It had never left. Back in Europe, lines were being drawn. Emperor Leopold I was still engaged in a war against the Ottoman Empire in the East, but he was winning. It was time for the Habsburgs to turn their eyes back to the West. So in July 1686, representatives from the Holy Roman Emperor, from the Spanish court from various German principalities, Italian city-states, and the king of Sweden, well, they all met in Osberg, Bavaria. Now, the Pope probably had agents at that meeting as well, but clandestinely. They met to draw up terms of an alliance intended to keep France in check. 
Now, the meeting actually happened on the advice of William of Orange, the stadtholder of the United Dutch Provinces. Now, William himself couldn't attend. He was busy dealing with internal Dutch politics, as well as events back in England. More on that later, though. The point is, continental Europe was marshalling all her strength against France. Now, the alliance would be called the League of Osburg and everyone in the alliance had a job in the League. It was Spain's job, at least part of Spain's job, to put pressure on the French and the West Indies. Now, the Spanish finally had the backing of the Germans and Italians, the other Habsburg states, as well as support of the Pope, so they were more than happy to put that pressure on the French. And as we discussed last time, they were already gathering fleets and employing privateers. They were already legally justified in defending themselves against the privateers, but now they had the strength to redouble those efforts. They could finally push their weight around. The entire history of the story of pirates and piracy in the West Indies is dependent on an economically and militarily weak Spain. But for the moment, Spain was neither. Now, England was trying to stay out of the whole affair. But Spain wasn't making it easy. In the West Indies, a few months after the League of Augsburg met, Henry Morgan would write of, quote, the most unchristian-like conduct and unneighborliness of the Spaniard, who takes all our ships at sea or in port. They have this year captured 22 sail and absolutely ruined our bay trade, end quote. The Spaniards in question were privateers. In this case, they were mostly a flota under the command of two captains based out of Santiago de Cuba. There is a pirate that we have only mentioned briefly in the past, and he deserves a closer look. His name was Juan Corso, at least that's what the Spanish called him. His real name was Giovanni Michel. He was Corsican by birth, along with his brother, Biagio. As young men, they were granted license from Spain to travel to the New World and act as privateers. It was the sort of distinction that was rarely given out to Spanish sailors, but even though Corsica was under Spanish authority, they weren't Spanish citizens. They arrived in Havana in the 1670s to fight in the American theater of the Franco-Dutch War. They were contemporaries of men like Lorho de Graff and Michel de Grammont, Jan Willems and John Coxon and Bartholomew Sharp and Jean Rose, all the post-Panama buccaneers we've been discussing. But these two, these Corsican brothers, were on the opposing side. However, those Corsicans and all of their shipmates were cut from the same cloth as the buccaneers, but while they were the same sort of scoundrels as the pirates we've been discussing for months, ruthless violent, hard-bitten pirates, they were not brethren of the coast. See, first of all, they were Catholic. Now, that wasn't automatic disbarment from the brethren, but it didn't help. The problem, the real problem, was that they were fighting for the interests of Spain, and, oddly at the time, for the Dutch Republic. Now, actual Dutch privateers, like de Graaf and André Zoon, they were fighting for France. See, it wasn't really religion driving the pirates anymore. It wasn't Catholic versus Protestant, at least not that clean cut. It was all about money and power and bourbon interests versus Habsburg interests. Now, the two brothers were given Hispanic names. Giovanni Michel was called Juan Miguel. Giovanni is the italicized form of Juan, and both are versions of the English name John. 
and then they were called Corso for Corsican. Juan Corso was John, the Corsican. His brother, Biagio Michel, was Blas Miguel, the Corsican. They sailed under Spanish privateers during the war, but when peace finally arrived in about 1678, they took to private mercenary work. Not exactly piracy, but they were patrolling Spanish waters as a sort of unofficial coast guard. They would capture and board and loot and then impound enemy ships. It wasn't legal exactly, but not exactly illegal. But much like the English and the French and the Dutch, their counterparts, this particular brand of privateering stuck to attacking only the other side. Now, they may have been straddling the line of legality, but Havana and Campeche, well, they would usually look the other way. They would fail to notice when these Corsican brothers arrived in port as long as they stuck to attacking the bad guys. By about 1680, Juan Corso rose to be the captain of his own ship. For a while, his brother served on board the same vessel, but eventually he'd move on. Juan Corso's first mate was a man named Giorgio Nicolo, or Jorge Nicolas. The Jamaican governor, Lynch, would refer to their crew in what was less than racially sensitive terms as, quote, Corsicans, Slavonians, Greeks, Mulattoes, a mongrel parcel of thieves, end quote. This parcel of thieves has been everywhere in our story. The Spanish ships that sailed in to bust up the logwood camps in the Bay of Campeche in 1679, that was Juan Corso and his flota. If you recall way back after John Coxon and Jean Rose sacked Portobello when they left their ships to cross the Isthmus and enter the Pacific, well, it was Juan Corso and his flota that captured those ships and brought their skeleton crews back to Santiago de Cuba. That's where they were, quote, condemned to death as pirates, but the vessel and the Englishmen detained. As the French pirates were marched to execution, the town mutinied and reprieved them from fear of the Frenchmen's revenge, and paid the governor two hundred pieces of eight in compensation. This is the manner in which they do everything. End quote. So the French were to be executed, but the local people decided that that wasn't going to happen. Instead, they paid the French governor two hundred pieces of eight to brush this aside. You see, that's the sort of fear that the pirates inspired in the hearts of the Spanish, but not in Juan Corso. After that event, he grew tired of the politics and the legal restrictions that bound him. So he left privateering behind and turned to a more piratical method. He started taking English and French ships without any regard for the law. He began killing rather than arresting anyone he suspected of piracy. He became known for employing the rack and the whip on his prisoners. Now, it would have been easy to paint him as the bad guy throughout this entire story, and he was a bad guy, but they were all bad guys. He wasn't the bad guy, though. Now, he could be the antagonist, the foil against which the other pirates had to fight, but to present him that way isn't really fair. He might better be portrayed as a sort of vigilante, a Coast Guard man-turned-pirate-hunter. If you imagine him as a young, handsome, dashing, Corsican version of Charles Bronson in Death Wish, a good man gone bad, out to give those punks a taste of their own medicine, 
well, you might be on the right track. He would eventually be arrested by the Spanish authorities after pressure from Governor Lynch and Governor de Cusay, but then he was released. You see, he was a foil, but he was a foil for those in power. Whenever the Spanish would complain of depredations against them, the English or the French could just point to Corso, taking ships and murdering whole crews. But whenever the English would complain about Corso, the Spanish could report with, Hey, remember that time your lieutenant governor burned Panama to the ground? Or if it was the French, they could point to Jean Rose or Pierre Le Picard or Michel de Grammont. You see, it was a system that kept anyone in power from having to accept any real responsibility. All the while, their unofficial agents robbed and tortured and murdered their way across the sea. Now, eventually, Juan Corso's name would be equally as feared, if not even more feared, than Lorho de Graff, but by the other side. Do you recall the Battle of Alacran Reef? following the sack on Campeche when Lorjo de Graff was happened upon by the Armada de Barlavento in the Gulf of Mexico a few weeks back? Do you remember the pirates that were captured by the Spanish and put to the question by the Inquisition? Those pirates had knowledge of the Gulf Coast colony established by Robert, Sieur de la Salle. The Armada and the Inquisition were preparing to send out forces to find and crush that colony. But Juan Corso took it upon himself to find that colony first, and to deal with the pirates he found there in his own way. They wouldn't be arrested, they would be tortured and murdered. Now I think it's entirely possible that someone in Havana got word to Corso, informing him of the colony. Some inquisitor or inquisitor's assistant knew that the Spanish authorities would be bound by law and by honor and by international opinion. Juan Corso would not be. So Corso and his small flota sailed north-northeast from Tampico on the Gulf Coast of Nueva España. But on May 4, 1685, one of Corso's ships, probably under Jorge Nicolas, was forced perilously close to shore by a storm. Now, it rode out that storm safely in a small bay, but during the rough weather, one of the men on board spotted signs of European habitation on shore. The captain led his men ashore to investigate. They were armed and ready for battle. The only people to meet them there, though, were a few Indians, who informed the Spanish that all the Europeans in the settlement had gone inland. The Spanish discovered that the inhabitants were French. They knew that they had found La Salle's colony. If not for that storm, they would have sailed right on by. It was like the hand of God pushed them in the right direction. So they took their weapons and marched inland. They intended to follow and hopefully find the French pirates. However, there was no finding them. After a few days, the Spanish marched back to their ships... This wasn't a huge problem, though. They might not have found and crushed the French pirates, but they knew where they were, and they could report the whereabouts of the French settlement to the authorities. Perhaps they could even lead the return raiding party. Unfortunately, though, the weather hadn't really improved. After setting sail on May 19, they were driven ashore once again, this time into a dangerously rocky cove. Jorge Nicolas ordered 25 men into the boats to aid in pushing the ship back out to sea. Now, they were successful, 
but when the ship caught the wind, the men in the boats were unable to catch up and board their vessels, so they were just left behind. But three days later, their ship reappeared to rescue them. Now, only 16 men were in the boats. Nine were ashore foraging for food. Those on the boats were brought on board, but when those nine emerged from the tree line, hopefully with some food in hand, the bay had once again grown too choppy. It was too dangerous to send men out in boats to collect them. So those nine were signaled to meet Jorge Nicholas down the coast in a few days' time. They set out to march, and they arrived at their destination, where they waited for Jorge Nicholas. But he never arrived. His ship was lost somewhere in the gulf, never to be seen again. Juan Corso and his brother would return empty-handed. The Spanish sent out an official contingent of the Armada to seek out La Salle's settlement shortly thereafter. Juan Enrique Barroto, an old captain of Corso's in the Soledad, would lead the expedition, alongside Antonio Romero in La Concepcion. They would return safely from their voyage. They wouldn't lose any ships, but they would also be empty-handed. They didn't find the colony. Meanwhile, the Corso brothers continued their raiding. They grew ever more violent. They were difficult to rein in. Now, they may have been orders, or maybe not under orders, when they raided Lorho de Graaf's plantation. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. That means that if what I theorized last time was correct, the men that killed Francesca de Graff and Mikhail Andrezun and possibly Pierre Lelong, well, they were out there sailing. And Lorho de Graff knew who they were, and he knew where to find them, more or less. After his raid on Tihosuko, we receive our next word of Lorho de Graff from Jamaica. It actually comes in that same month that all of the continental European powers met in Osberg, July 1686. Quote, Lorho passed our north coast the other day, bound for Tortugas, but not in command, as he himself told the master of one of our sloops. End quote. He would eventually make it to Tortuga, or more likely actually to Petit Guave, but not quite yet. Before he returned home, de Graff sailed south toward Cartagena. There he engaged a small force of Spanish ships. Now, this may have just been some old-fashioned Spanish shipping he was raiding, or it may have been those Spanish privateers. Considering what followed this event, there's a good chance it was actually the flota of the Corsican brothers. In November, Hinder Molesworth would write, quote, 
Lorho was wrecked off Cartagena while in pursuit of a small bark, but nevertheless took her with his boat and saved his people. It is uncertain whither he is gone, but certainly my letter offering him terms has never come to his hand. End quote. What Molesworth is saying here is that de Graff survived, but he didn't know where de Graff went, though he certainly didn't go to Jamaica. So things weren't going all that well for Lorho de Graff. He lost his ship, the Neptune, even if he had taken another. Juan Corso and his brother were still out there somewhere. They'd gotten away. Both de Graff and the Corsicans were out for revenge. This was a matter of course in the West Indies, but things were about to get much, much worse. On November 16, Louis XIV and James II of England reached an agreement intended to restrict buccaneering in the West Indies. Now, this agreement was made in good faith, but it would turn out to be utterly pointless for several reasons. First, the governors in Port Royal and Petit Guave had little to do with the buccaneers anymore. Most of them had moved on to that Gulf Coast colony founded by La Salle, so their attempts at reigning in the buccaneers would be little more than pirate hunting. Second, the Spanish were still searching for that Gulf Coast colony. On Christmas Day, 1686, Veracruz once again sent out ships, the Rosario under Captain Rivas and the Esperanza under Captain Iriarte. They would be unsuccessful as well, though. The third and arguably most important reason that the agreement was about to become pointless is because any agreement reached between France and England and more especially Louis and James, was about to become void. More on that later. But the fourth reason that the agreement to curb buccaneering was utterly useless, well, that reason was currently crossing the Atlantic Ocean. I've talked before about the English Council called the Lords of Trade and Plantations. They were an august body made up of powerful, landed English aristocrats, but they were still relatively new in 1686. I'd like you to imagine that same council, but 200 years old, and instead of being in charge of a dozen or so small islands and a few miles of North American coastline, they were in charge of one of the largest empires the world had ever known. And instead of a few notable names, imagine that the body was led by none other than the Grand Inquisitor of the Council of the Supreme and General Inquisition, he presided over that council, which included archbishops and chancellors of the royal audiencia and governors of Havana and Cartagena and Vera Cruz, as well as captains general and admirals and even the viceroys of both Nueva España and Peru. That body existed. It was called El Real y Supremo Consejo de las Indias, or the Royal and Supreme Council of the Indies. They were the real power behind every move that occurred in the Spanish Empire, everywhere from the Philippines to Africa to America. And they had just struck a deal. Usually that body found it distasteful to employ privateers. Now, some exceptions might be made in times of war. For example, there were those Corsican brothers and their Venetian allies, but... They were barred from normal naval service, and they proved a useful tool. However, at this moment, things were growing ever more tense back in Europe. All the talk was of war, and Spain would be needing her full naval might back there. So the Council of the Indies agreed to allow a group of pr 
private ship owners and their captains to sail from Spain for the Americas as mercenary private naval units. They were called the Esquadron Vizcano, also called the Guipuzcano, or the Biscay Squadron. The English called them the Biscayners. They were among the most elite naval fighting forces that Spain had to offer. In the minds of the pirates, they were almost a mythical force. When Exquemelin wrote of them, it was in a hushed, almost reverent tone. Now, the Windward Fleet was to be avoided, naturally. Their warships were powerful and could seriously ruin your day. But they could be avoided. The Biscayners, though, when they arrived, they were truly frightening. They had the same skills as the very best privateers, but then they had better ships and better guns and better discipline. You see, the Bay of Biscay is that gulf that touches both the western coast of France and the northern coast of Spain. It was a tense expanse of water on which to work. The navy men that sailed those waters were always ready for attack or invasion, and they constantly had to fight. That kind of environment breeds quality seamen. But when their terms of service were up, a few of them wanted to continue roving. Those that were deemed worthy of membership joined the Esquadron Vizcano. These were the best of the best, the most elite sailors in Spain. I imagine that, for the pirates, hearing that a contingent of Biscay privateers was on its way was like hearing that a Spartan army was marching on your city, or that half a dozen Viking longships had just been spotted off the coast. You're going to have a bad time. Okay, have I built them up enough? Because as 1686 turned into 1687, an armada of Biscay squadron ships was nearing the West Indies. They were led by Almirante Francisco Garcia Galan. He was quoted as saying before departing Spain that his goal was, quote, to go in search of the pirate Lorencio before anything else, end quote. He was also accompanied by his two top lieutenants, Capitan Fermin Salaveri and Capitan José de Leoz y Ecalar. They were all intended to aid Spain in any conflict that might arise between the European powers and the West Indies, but like all the privateers, they were tough to control. They may have had better discipline in their ranks than typical English or French pirates, but they were only nominally beholden to the Council of the Indies. Still, though, that wasn't a problem for Spain. With the specter of war looming, they needed men who were difficult to control, as long as they could be unleashed. Now, England was still trying to avoid war, and Spain was still making it difficult. For example, a few months back, while Lorho de Graaf was marching his 500 pirates through the Yucatan jungle, the English ship HMS Dartmouth was chasing down a Spanish privateer that had captured a cargo of slaves. The Dartmouth followed that privateer to San Juan, Puerto Rico. The governor of San Juan invited the English in. He treated them as friends, and then he attempted to arrest the English captain of the Dartmouth. Now, the English escaped, but only just. The Dartmouth had to withstand two hours of bombardment from the shore batteries before she could make good her escape. But still, though, England managed to stay neutral. There was a serious political question here. The King of England was caught between his friendship and alliance with King Louis and the rising anti-French sentiment in England and all across Europe. So, 
it was the best decision to stay out of it for now. Then in February, the Esquadron Vizcano reached the West Indies. Their commander, Almirante Francisco Garcia Galan, had been killed. They got involved in an engagement off the Cape Verde Islands, so command fell to his two lieutenants, who concocted a plan. Now most of the squadron was to stay near the Windward Islands, under Capitan José de Leoz y Ecolar. They based themselves around Trinidad, Tobago, and Margarita, They set about the business of taking English vessels. Within only a few days, the 100-ton relief out of London, then the Speedwell, and then the Phoenix all fell to Spanish privateers. According to historian John Latimer, this caused, quote, outrage among the English authorities. Soon the Biscayners were making hay by attacking every English vessel they could find, down to the humblest fishing boat, end quote. Captain Fermin Salaveri, though, chose not to stick around the Windward Islands. He had dispatches to bring to the governors of Havana and Veracruz. It appears likely that his orders in Havana were to collect the privateers operating out of Santiago de Cuba, on the other side of the island, under Capitan's Corso. Now those men were to join up with Salaveri and to follow him. Salaveri reached Havana by March 1687. Word of his coming had finally spread throughout all the West Indies. Everyone knew that the Biscayners had arrived. This created waves everywhere, certainly in the French and English ports, but those still had a population of buccaneers that would be bothered by this. Maybe most especially, waves were created in Veracruz. The Armada de Barlavento was stationed there in Veracruz, and word of the privateers wasn't happily received. See, the sailors on those Armada ships hadn't been busy lately. They'd been sitting idle in port, and unfortunately that meant they weren't getting paid. In fact, they were owed money already that they weren't receiving. And then they heard about these up-jumped, smarmy privateers that showed up to steal all the gold and all the glory, and probably, while they were at it, all the women— So the crews of the Armada mutinied. Marley calls it a riot. They abandoned their post. They abandoned the ships. They took their guns and what valuables they could put hands to and left. Over 200 men escaped before the officers arrived and put down their little revolt with a few well-placed musket balls. By the next month, in May, Captain Salaveri was ready to depart Cuba and head for the Gulf of Mexico and to Veracruz there in New Spain. But he didn't know what was waiting for him. Lorjo de Graff had been hunting Spanish privateers for months now. Sometimes he was more successful, sometimes less, and sometimes, instead of privateers, he just took regular merchant vessels. But he knew the Corso brothers were stationed around Santiago de Cuba, on the southern coast of the island. However, those were their home waters. They were heavily patrolled by Coast Guard ships. Skilled privateers like the Corsos, though, are hard enough to find. When they did come out, they came out in strength. De Graff wanted these men. I can almost picture him here as, well, usually he was known for his dashing good looks and charm, with a well-kempt, twirled French mustache, but here I see him as unshaven and haggard. Still consumed by grief and rage over the loss of his wife, I see him drinking not just a few cups of wine in the evening, but bottles of rum at a time. Still, though, he would have been one of the most talented captains on the sea. 
He too had heard about these Biscayners, and likely he had heard that their job was, quote, to go in search of the pirate Lorenzo before anything else. Despite whatever his mental state might have been, that wasn't the sort of thing that Lorho de Graff would put up with. The keys off the southern coast of Cuba are a tropical paradise. Long, white sand beaches with crystal clear blue water, and those waters are filled with tropical fish in every color imaginable. Their coral reefs are in just as many colors and stretch as far as the eye can see. But they can also be hazardous. Those reefs are home to sharks, and they can lay a trap for anyone unfamiliar with them. After departing Havana, Captain Salaveri sailed east to the south of Cuba. He sailed between the coast and those keys, making his way to Santiago to collect the Corso brothers before heading on to Veracruz. That was where Lorjo Cornelis Baudouin de Graff found him, and he pounced. His ship came flying out from behind one of the many islands in those keys. Captain Salaveri tried to maneuver out of his line of fire, hoping to find a clear shot on the privateer, but Salaveri was unfamiliar with those waters. His ship ran aground on one of the many shifting sandbars or reefs under the waves. Now he tried to pull free, but he failed. He was hopelessly stuck there. And, very much like one of those sharks below the surface, smelling blood, Lorho de Graff closed in. Now Captain Salaveri prepared to defend his ship to the last. Even if they fell, even if every one of his men perished, he would refuse to surrender to Lorenzo. His men readied their weapons, they said one last prayer, and they prepared themselves to meet the Heavenly Father. But then, sailing in from the east, came the fleet of Giovanni and Biagio Michel, Juan and Blas Miguel Corso. They rushed in, hoping to rescue Salaveri and to chase de Graff off, but de Graff wasn't the sort of captain to turn away from a fight, especially with these two. Instead, he came about, he faced the Corso brothers, and he opened fire. Three vessels attempted to surround de Graff, two ships of the Corso brothers and the Periagua. The plan was to catch him in their crossfire. It was exactly the right kind of tactic for the situation. In fact, it was exactly the kind of tactic that de Graff himself was fond of using. However, if these Corso brothers had seen de Graff operate two years earlier against the Armada de Barlavento at Alacran Reef, they would have known just how skilled de Graff was at this sort of combat. Still, the Corsos fought hard. In many ways, it was a lot different from fighting the Armada. Those were ships that stood and shot while these privateers operated like the buccaneers. All of them maneuvered around one another. The three Spanish vessels were acting in concert to entrap de Graff. But whenever they thought they had him and manned the guns, a hail of large shot and musket fire rushed out to meet them. Now de Graff was outmanned and outgunned. Still, though, he pressed the Corsos, and every time they set a trap, he slipped out. But there's a question worth asking here. Who are the good guys in this fight? We've talked about Lorho de Graff at length. We've come to know him. He's lately been our protagonist. But he's absolutely not a hero by any stretch of the imagination. Now, he was known to conduct himself with a certain level of decorum, there were rules on board his ship and on his raids. Compared to the other pirates in this story, even most of his companions, most of the prisoners that encountered him held de Graff in high regard, almost gentlemanly for a pirate. 
The Spanish, on the other hand, were responsible for untold amounts of blood and fire, for hundreds of innocent English and French civilians' lives. So, were they the bad guys? That might be how traditional media and Western historians from an English or French background would tell that story, but let's look at it from the opposite perspective. De Groff, too, was responsible for theft and torture and murder on a huge scale. Whole cities had been emptied and looted and burned on his orders. In a single night in Veracruz, he and his men massacred hundreds of patriotic Spanish guardsmen. They were just doing their jobs, protecting the good people of Veracruz, and he left them dead, with rivers of blood behind him. The Spanish here, and the Corsicans, were good Catholic boys. They were there to catch and execute the notorious pirate Lorenzo. So, were they the good guys? Perhaps not, if you ask Francesca de Graff, or Mikhail Andrezun, or any of the dozens, perhaps hundreds of captains who were left dead in their wake. If you were watching a movie, you would be urged to take sides here. The pirates might be morally gray, but in their hearts they were good people. But I urge you not to do that. There were no good guys here. Now, they were all human. They were all made up of that same tangled mesh of complex motivations and emotions that drive us all. But each and every last one of the people fighting here was guilty of something. Now, de Groff would eventually come about and sink the Periagua, which gave him the opportunity to focus in on one of the larger Spanish vessels. In that fight, he chose the ship of Juan Corso. Now, we don't know that back in February 1686, more than a year gone, that Lorho de Graff was there when the Spanish privateers visited his plantation. We don't know that perhaps he was away surveying his fields when the Spanish arrived. We don't know that he saw the glow of his home up in flames in the distance and rushed back. And we don't know that when he finally arrived, he found it was too late, that his wife was lying there, lying in the yard with a bayonet wound to her belly, bleeding out. We don't have a record of him holding Francesca in his arms while her life slipped away, or of him seeing the retreating column of Juan Corso in the distance. If you want to imagine that, feel free. But remember that the stories of Juan and Blas Miguel Corso had the same sorts of tragedies in their past. Lorho de Graff boarded the vessel of Juan Corso. His men, experienced at this sort of privateering, stormed over the deck and captured or killed every man aboard. I assume that at some point de Graff and Corso crossed swords on deck. Now, whether they did or not, and whether they were swinging from the rigging and showcasing expert riposte, Juan Corso was killed. With that, Lorho de Graff sailed away. Blas Miguel found his brother's body after the battle, and those of more than a hundred of his friends floating in the sea. Blas Miguel then rescued Captain Salivere. He pulled his ship free. However, upon receiving his orders to follow Captain Salivere, he informed the Spaniard that he would not be joining Salivere on the way to Veracruz. Those pristine reefs in the Cuban Keys were now broken. The crystal-clear waters were muddied with blood. Capitan Blas Miguel Corso surveyed all of this. He prepared his brother for a proper burial at sea, and he vowed that he would take revenge on Lorenzo. 
Next time, we're going to look at his attempt at that revenge. We're going to follow the Biscayans in their personal war against Lorho de Graaf, and we're going to revisit and catch up with Anne and Jan Willems. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd also like to thank everyone who has helped support the show, either by becoming a patron on Patreon, or by leaving us a donation at the website, or by leaving us a review at iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever it is you happen to listen to the show. I couldn't do this without you, so to all of you, thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, I certainly suggest you do so over at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, where you can find maps, images, show notes, as well as links to many of the sources that we have used on these episodes. And then you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, most importantly... Thank you for listening.